This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Before I start on this uh, second talk, I wanted to say a brief word about philosophy, because we've obviously impressed upon you how important we think it is. But I want to say that that's not a um, unique a feature that's unique to us. It is, for example, uh, part of the standard curricular formation of Roman Catholic priests that they have to study philosophy for at least two years before they even begin their theological studies. And um, it's not something that is a, a new development. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong part of the Western tradition, um, and not without reason. Uh, St. Justin Martyr, for example, argued that Plato had read the Old Testament. I don't think that he did, but what he found there shocked him that when he was reading Plato, that it, it seemed so, uh, so strongly to cohere with the Old Testament. I think it was St. Cyril of Alexandria, but don't quote me on that, who said that uh, Greek philosophy was like a Third Testament. In any event, um, what I'm getting at is that I, I do, this is, these thoughts were uh, inspired by the Q&A session that followed the last talk. And in particular, I started thinking about biblical interpretation and how you do, in fact, need a sound theory before you even begin to interpret the Bible. And I wanted to recommend a book to you in case you're interested on this. Um, this book is by a man named Jonathan Pennington, who's a Baptist biblical scholar. And he wrote a book that's called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And human flourishing, this term flourishing is a translation of a Greek term that uh, eudaimonia, that's normally translated as, as happiness. But this is an explicit reference to the Aristotelian and Greek uh, philosophy that he thinks actually informs the Sermon on the Mount. So what's interesting about this man, I met him at a conference where he was the only non-Catholic, and he was really excited to be there because he said that um, as a Baptist, he just dove straight into the Bible in his education because that's what you're supposed to do. And after he did a lot of biblical studies and became a biblical scholar, he was listening to a bunch of Catholics have a conversation about Aristotle. And he said, wow, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Where did, like, why is that? And so we started um, researching this Aristotle guy and, and found that he lot of, had a lot of interesting things to say. But what was more important was that he found that Greek ideas, Aristotelian ideas, were so much in the ether, as it were, so strongly influential in the New Testament period, that he began to adopt the position that you can't understand the New Testament without understanding Greek philosophy. And he makes that claim in this book and he tries to show how there are Greek ideas operative in the Sermon on the Mount, in the very words of Christ, as recorded by Matthew, that uh, with, without which you will not properly understand the sermon. So anyway, I, I recommend that to you in case you want to investigate that further. Now for the talk, the second talk is called Man as a Believing Animal because I want to emphasize that although we are rational animals, belief and faith are very much a part of our lives as well. And we have to understand how belief and faith fit in our lives as rational animals. And I'd like to start with a quote from a philosopher, speaking of philosophy, named Alistair McIntyre. And unlike all of the other philosophers whom I've quoted so far, he's not dead. He's close to it. He's in his 90s. But he is alive. And one of his most famous quotes is this. He says, facts, like telescopes and wigs for gentlemen, were a 17th century invention. 
Now, the thing about this claim is that not only does it sound absurd at first, but he is actually completely serious. He totally means to say that facts were an invention, that they are, um, in a way, fake. And this isn't to say that Alistair McIntyre does not think that things are true, or that there is no truth. He very much does think that. But he doubts that you can sort certain truths into this category that we call facts. So what are facts supposed to be? Facts are supposed to be unquestionable truths, things that everyone could agree to, regardless of where they come from or what their educational background is, and that every rational person should be able to accept without controversy. And in order to safeguard this idea, if you adopt this understanding of facts, then you end up making a second move as well, which is to relegate everything else that you could know into the realm of opinion. And so we end up with what we call the fact and opinion dichotomy. And matters of opinion are those things about which one cannot be sure, about which there cannot even be certainty. And the quintessential example of an opinion is a value judgment, that something is good or bad. You cannot say for sure whether something is good or bad. All value judgments are expressions of preference, not of anything real, not of anything factual. So what does McIntyre take issue with? Two things. The first is that there is any way in which we can interpret reality objectively as disinterested observers, as pure minds that we can be unbiased observers of the world around us. That's not true. There is no objectivity. We are subjects. We are knowing subjects. And I think that McIntyre's position on this should be clear from what I said in the last talk. There is no knowledge that is unmediated by the senses. We are knowing animals. So what that means is that we always know things through the mediation of our sense powers. And our sense powers, they have habits. They are shaped by custom. They are shaped by experience. Uh, they are shaped by our culture and so on. There's no way to know things without having these other factors at play. Now, for a modernist, this causes anxiety. This makes you feel like maybe you don't actually know the world around you. But it shouldn't do that. It shouldn't cause you any anxiety at all. What it should mean is that you should think about the mode of knowing that is proper to human beings, which is as rational animals. That is our animality that I'm talking about, the mediation of the sense powers, the influence of culture and experience, and so on. The reason this makes modernists anxious is because they think of us as angels. We are not floating intellects. Um, this neglects to understand our proper mode of understanding things. Experience and culture and custom do play a role in our coming to know things. But all this means for us is that we should make sure that our education is sound, that our culture is a good one, that our experiences are properly formative, and that that way they help us to come to apprehend the world accurately and truthfully. And we can indeed do that. But what that means is that we actually do have to have proper education, good experience, and a culture that is one that shapes us properly. So that's one thing that he takes issue with, this idea that we can simply be detached and obje objective observers of reality. 
The second thing has to do with values. The distinction between facts and values that we understand today has its roots in modern philosophy. If you read David Hume's inquiry on, um, on morals, you can see him make it right at the beginning. There's matters of fact over here and matters of value over there. And things that have to do with morality, they're over here. And you can't rationally investigate them. They just are. You just sense what they are, and that's it. And matters of fact, you can reason about those things, but those are only things like, you know, uh, mathematics or figuring out how to get from point A to point B and things like that. This distinction, though, between facts and values was not really an invention of the Enlightenment philosophers so much as it was an expression of the way people habitually thought at that time. And in that environment, a human being's ability to know things was questioned. People doubted that you could do this. They might be able to agree with each other, for example, that a cup is blue or that, you know, I'm standing in front of you and there's a certain distance between us and so on, but they would not agree with each other or that this play might be better than that play. Whether you think one is better than another is simply an expression of your preference. And the reason why they didn't think this was because they didn't think that you could actually rationally investigate these matters. Now, why is it that we can, in fact, do this? What is it that makes something good? I'll ask you a simple question. What is a good saw? What are the properties of a good saw? What makes a saw to be a good saw rather than a bad saw? It's pretty easy to answer that question. A good saw has to be sharp, it has to have a, a sound handle, and it shouldn't break when you try to cut wood with it and so on. In other words, a good saw is one that does what a saw does well. A good saw is one that you can use to cut wood. If you can't cut wood with it, then it's not a good saw. So there's a relationship between goodness and function. What a thing does, what it's for, and how well it does that thing. A good whatever is a whatever that is apt for doing what whatevers do. And just as we say this of saws, we can really say it of anything. We can even say it of people. A good man is a man who does what a man does well. And ultimately, what does a man do? He is supposed to know and love God. That's ultimately his purpose. Now, <clears throat> what this demonstrates, this little foray into the distinction between facts and opinions, is that if we're going to talk about faith or belief, we have to get rid of this idea of facts. And the reason is because if we hold to this idea, this understanding of facts, then everything else that we could have an opinion about or say that we know or express belief in is relegated to the realm of opinion. And that would include religious truth. And opinion, to opinion would belong those things that are not investigable. But we want to say that we can, in fact, investigate those things that we have opinions about. We want to be able to say that belief can be substantiated or unsubstantiated. And so we have to get rid of this dichotomy between facts and opinions. And in fact, if you look at it, it isn't too hard to see why the fact and opinion dichotomy breaks down when you scrutinize it. Think, for example, about the kinds of things that you would consider facts. Most people, I think, would agree that if there are any facts at all, they are the things that scientists have discovered. 
But is it a fact that atoms are composed of three particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons? Maybe it is. But how do you know that? Because you trust the scientists who did the experiments. Now, you might say that this is factual knowledge, but your knowledge of it isn't factual. You believe them. What about the fact that the United States declared independence from England in the year 1776? Scientific? No, definitely not. Factual? Well, if you buy the fact-opinion dichotomy, I'd like to think so. What about the fact that Star Wars is clearly a better movie series than Star Trek? Now, conventionally, we'd call this a matter of opinion, but what I'm saying is that we could have a real conversation about cinematics, about script writing, and so on, and come up with the criteria that determine what make a good movie, and together we could come to the realization of something that we actually already know the answer to. The point of all this is to show that the fact-value distinction, according to which measurable and objective things can be considered true or false, but judgments about value cannot, does not hold up to scrutiny. Similarly, the fact-opinion dichotomy, according to which some things are clearly accessible to all reasonable people and other things are not, is also false. Opinions can actually be right or wrong, and we can discuss whether they are so. And the reason why I want to break down facts and opinions is because I need to make room for faith and belief. If we're stuck in this fact-opinion system, then we only have these two categories to work with, and the opinion does not work for us. Okay, so what other categories do we need? Think about how it is that we come to know something. I'll start with coming to understand something intellectually. When you begin to investigate the truth of something, the first epistemological status that you have, the first kind of knowledge that you have is what we would call suspicion. We suspect that something is true. We don't know it yet. We think it might be. We're not entirely sure. We're not really sure about it enough to say even that we think that it's true, but we have this nagging feeling that maybe it is. That's suspicion. If we continue our investigation, we advance to the level of what we might call opinion. And, you know, no surprise, I like Aquinas a lot, and I happen to think that his, his definition of opinion is a good one. Aquinas says that an opinion is what we have when we hold that something is true, but we have fear that the opposite is true. So we hold it to be true because, as far as we can tell, the evidence points in this direction but we're not so sure as to say that we are convinced that it's true. We just think it the most likely possibility. But notice that your reason for having an opinion in something is purely intellectual. It's simply where your mind goes when you have a certain amount of evidence. In other words, it isn't a moral matter. It's simply the way reality seems to you. What this means is that there's no sense in getting mad at people for their opinions. They're just expressing the way the world seems to them. Now we'll continue. We went from suspicion to opinion. Now we're going to advance in our quest for understanding. And we go from opinion to knowledge. Knowledge is what you have when you have attained certainty that something is true. And notice that this certainty is, again, not a moral matter. It is something that 
is a result of your intellect's natural, natural propensity to assent to the truth. So that you, for example, can't convince yourself that two and two make five. You automatically assent to those things that are immediately true, obvious to you. The next level is understanding. And how does that fit into this picture? We already have certainty. The difference between understanding and knowledge is that knowledge is what you have when you know that something is true, but understanding is what you have when you know why it is true. You understand not only the thing, you know not only the thing, but you understand the reasons behind it. I might be perfectly sure, for example, that the Pythagorean theorem makes sense. I might even know that it works, but that doesn't mean that I've gone through the axiomatic proof to understand why it works. Once I've done that, then I have understanding. So now we've moved up the epistemological ladder from ignorance to understanding. The levels were suspicion, opinion, knowledge, understanding. Where is belief? Where is faith? They seem to be missing. Scripture offers us a clue right at the beginning so that we can figure out where faith should go. Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now that is an important note. We do not consider people righteous because of what they know. We do not consider people righteous because of what they understand. We do not consider people righteous because of their opinions. Otherwise, the trope of the evil genius in the comics wouldn't exist. Goodness would be related to intelligence or to knowledge. It isn't. Smart people are often the worst. But belief in something can be a reason why you might consider a person righteous. So what accounts for the difference? What this shows is that belief is a moral matter, unlike knowledge, unlike understanding. What that means is that it involves the will. It involves a choice. When we believe in something, it is because we see it as good to believe it. It appears good to us. Somebody whom we trust tells us something, and we assent to that proposal because we trust that person on the basis of that person's authority, as it were, or on our trust in that person, we choose to believe that something is true. For example, if one of you told me that my wife had cheated on me, I wouldn't believe you. First, I'd wonder how you might know such a thing. But more importantly, the fact that I've known her for a long time and I've built up trust in her over the years and not with you, that means that I would trust her testimony over yours. And that shows you why belief is a moral matter. It is based on trust. It involves a choice to make an act of assent to a proposition on the basis of that trust. And because belief is a moral matter, we can, in fact, praise or blame people for it, even though we don't do that for their opinions. And notice that also, if we have belief in something, we do not have knowledge in that same thing. Because knowledge, as I said before, is kind of automatic. You cannot affirm something... Um, oh, sorry, you cannot not affirm something that you know. If you know something to be true, you can't convince yourself that it's wrong. But this doesn't mean that belief isn't reasonable. Even though we can't have knowledge and belief in the same thing, 
that doesn't mean that belief is not reasonable, because it wouldn't make sense to believe in something that seemed wrong to you. It wouldn't make sense to believe in some person who you didn't trust. So belief is based upon some evidence, but ultimately it is founded on trust. Evidence brings you to the level of opinion, but what, what bridges the gap between opinion and belief is the act of choice. Belief, therefore, does not come with the kind of thoroughness that knowledge does or that understanding does. Because we wonder about the things that we believe. We want to understand them more thoroughly. And this is why Augustine said, for example, that uh, faith is thinking with assent. You make an act of assent to a proposition, but you don't fully understand it. So you can assent, for example, to the proposition that God is triune and one simultaneously, but that doesn't mean you understand what that means, and that's why Augustine himself wrote an entire long book called De Trinitate trying to understand that, even though he affirmed his belief in it. And building on this, St. Anselm defined theology, this quest that we're undergoing right now, as faith-seeking understanding. Because a person, a theologian, has faith. A theologian makes assent to propositions uh, that are true in Christianity, but then he seeks to understand them, and that's properly what theology is. I believe this to be the case. I don't understand why it is the case. I would like to. Now, of course, what this also means is that some things might be a matter of belief for one person and a matter of knowledge for somebody else. For example, Aquinas actually thinks that you can demonstrate the existence of God, but he also thinks that the demonstration is quite difficult to understand and that few people will actually understand it. So those people who understand it, they know that God exists. But those people who don't understand it might believe that God exists. But in any event, it's worth pausing to think about just how much of our lives are based on belief. Lots of things that we would like to claim that we know are actually beliefs. Who among us has gone and verified all of the scientific experiments that we've read about, the claims that our history books made, and so on? Who has replicated experiments that we read about in scientific journals, and so on? What this means is that most of the things that we assert, we assert on the basis of trust in other people. Human life, in fact, I would maintain, could not function otherwise. We do not have the time, we do not have the capacity to go about and try to verify every single claim that other people make. This is one indication of the solidarity of mankind. We really depend on each other in order to arrive at the truth of anything, and that's why people who make public claims have a massive responsibility to do so accurately. The ultimate point, though, is that our society is one that is based on trust, because most of what we know is not really knowledge, it's, it's often belief. We have, we have to be able to take people at their word when they speak, otherwise we couldn't have a functioning society. Okay, so that's belief in a nutshell. You assent to a proposition, it's not compelling enough on its own to make you assent to it, but because you trust the person who proposes it to you, you assent to it. What we've been talking about so far is a perfectly normal human thing that we deal with every day. But now we want to talk about Christianity. Now we get theological. 
To believe the truths contained in Christianity is to believe supernatural things. It might be a matter of reason whether God exists. You might be able to prove that or not. But it is not a matter of rational investigation whether God is triune. You're not going to get there on the basis of reason alone. And ultimately, the authority whom you trust when you assent to these things is God. God who reveals himself. But the thing about God is that he doesn't normally speak to us directly. He rather speaks to us through the church. As St. Paul tells us, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. So now this entails a difficulty. How do we know where God is speaking? As with human faith, faith in normal, mundane, everyday things, we have to have some motive for believing that what somebody tells us about Christianity is true. And in theology, these things are called the motives of credibility, the things that justify our act of faith, at least to some degree. They don't get us all the way there, but they get us, they put us on the right track. So things like miracles, for example, the witness of the prophets, these things would be motives of credibility. More commonly than these things, the witness of the people of God, that would be another motive of credibility. And I don't know about you, but I would say the holiness of the word of God is probably the motive of credibility that I find the most compelling. To me, the Christian account of man really makes the most sense. We are fallen and we are offered redemption in Christ. And nothing makes more sense to me than to say that the world is not as it should be. But to say that the world is not as it should be is to say that it could be otherwise, or that it could have been otherwise. And indeed, Christianity tells us that God did create it otherwise. But these things by themselves, these motives of credibility, these do not compel us to make an act of faith. An act of faith is a supernatural act, and consequently it entails... Um, a supernatural cause. It must be motivated by God's grace. God has to move us to make the act of faith. We do not have the means in our own natural constitution to evaluate the veracity of the claims that are proposed to us for belief supernaturally. Furthermore, faith is meritorious. An act of faith is a good thing. After all, Abraham was righteous because of the faith that he had. But we do not save ourselves. Christ saves us. So if we perform a meritorious act, it is only because Christ enables us to do so. As Jesus himself says, no one can come to me unless the Father draw him. And when Peter confesses his faith in Christ, Jesus replies that his faith was not from flesh and blood, but from his Father in heaven. So there you have it. Faith and belief are moral matters, they involve an assent of the intellect to a proposition on the basis of the will's choice, which is itself motivated by trust. And in supernatural faith, when we come to believe in Christianity, motivated by grace, moved by grace. Opinions, though they do not admit of certainty, can be questioned, and one can discuss whether one's opinion is right or wrong. Likewise, you can do the same thing with belief. You can question a person's motives for believing what they believe. 
Or you can question whether the trust that they place in the person on whose authority they made their act of belief was in fact trustworthy. In other words, religious matters are indeed open to rational investigation, even though supernatural truths can neither be proven nor disproven rationally. We can nevertheless investigate why it is that somebody has come to believe in such a thing. And properly speaking, the investigation of those things themselves, that's theology. So that's another place where reason can, has a role to play in these supernatural uh, propositions. The point of all this that I'm summarizing right now is to say that that fact-opinion dichotomy that I talked about earlier, which I suspect is lurking behind the thoughts that you are thinking right now, objecting to what I'm saying, these, this, uh, this dichotomy is threatening to undermine what I'm saying right now. And what I'm getting at in particular is the danger of fideism, emphasizing faith to the detriment of reason. Fideism does not recognize the rational component of faith. Faith must be reasonable insofar as it is founded on solid reasons and insofar as one's choice to place one's trust in a trustworthy authority is sound. To deny this is to fall prey to that fact-opinion dichotomy, which would be to relegate faith to the realm of mere opinion, which cannot be subject to rational investigation, but is simply a product of one's subjective preferences. On this understanding, faith is simply a leap into darkness that one makes because it feel, one feels like it, and no one can question anybody else's faith. But this is nonsense. Our faith is rightly placed. If our faith is rightly placed, then it should be defensible. We don't believe in Christianity merely because of an internal sentimentality. We believe because we have solid motives, and aided by grace, they move us to assent. Then once you assent, knowing that it is God to whom you are assenting, you indeed may be asked to believe things that don't make sense to you, but the truth of the matter is that they, if they are true, even if they don't make sense to you, knowing that it is God who reveals them to you, they do in fact make sense in themselves, even if you don't understand them. Thank you.